morning. This morning we're continuing on in our formed uh, teaching series from Luke chapter 6. Last week we talked uh, from these verses about the three kind of behaviors of Jesus that we see uh, in verses 12 through 19. And to say that if we are his disciples, if we are following him, then these behaviors that he exhibits here and these behaviors that we see him doing again and again in the Gospels, that these need to be the behaviors in our life. So we talked last week about uh, starting uh, with solitude, where he starts, on a mountain, praying uh, as his day begins at night by himself, hearing the voice of God, discerning the voice of God, letting it lead and letting it guide him. And we invited you into practices of solitude both this week, but in different opportunities in the weeks and months to come. And we look forward to how all of us continue to find our ways of hearing God's voice speak to us. Declaring, as Henry Nouwen said, um, that we are God's beloved, just as Jesus heard that voice. And, and what it means is that that's our starting point with our day and our starting point in our life. But today we're going to talk about the second of these behaviors because Jesus doesn't just stay on the mountaintop with God, but he moves forward and engages in community, relationships. And that's the second of these behaviors, the second leg of this three-legged stool that we want to be asking ourselves how we are living that out in our own lives, okay? And I want to start this conversation about community by uh, sharing a, a, a story with you guys because this past summer, uh, my family hit a, a little milestone. It wasn't one of those big milestones that you know you, you talk about, but it was a little one, and, and, and little milestones are significant too. And the little milestone that we hit was that I, uh, like many of you, uh, love to read. I love to have at least one or two books going at a time. And, um, and apparently when you go into summer, things become less busy. I, I keep waiting for that to actually be the case with the summer, but people say that as you go into summer. So you're like, okay, well, someday it might happen. And so one of the things that you prepare for uh, is what should be my summer reading list? Probably won't read 90% of what's there, but I'm gonna make a list so that I have an idea of what I want to read whenever this free time actually happens and emerges. And so uh, as I was starting to make this list at the beginning of the summer, the milestone is that my daughter came up to me, Miriam, our oldest uh, daughter, and she goes, Daddy, I think I have a book that should be on your reading list. Now, one of the annoying parts of being a parent, and I'm learning multiple things that we do that are annoying to uh, our teenage children, is that, uh, is that we still at some level as parents see them as like our little children, right? Like when Miriam talks about reading a book, I have very vivid memories of her being really young and struggling together through the cat in the hat. Right, And so she came up and she's like, I have this book that I'd recommend for you to read this summer. And you're like, oh, that's great, sweetie, yay. You know, that, I'm sure it's a great book with bright pictures and you know, other stuff. And I said, well, you know, what's it called? And she goes, well, it's, it's entitled When Breath Becomes Air. And I said, those are some big words you're reading now. <laughs> like, those are really good. And she did the whole like eye roll and it's like, Dad, it's, it's on the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction books, and I think you would really like it. And you're like, oh, okay. Uh, well, let me, let me check that out. And so uh, one of the books that I did read this summer is When Breath Becomes Air. And if you have not read it or heard of it, I would recommend uh, it to you. It is a powerful book. And I want to share a little bit about it with you as we start this conversation today on community, because... Um, because it illustrates some things in some good ways about where we are as a people. Um, 
And if you've not read the book, I'm not spoiling this for you. Everything I'm about to tell you, you learn in like the first three pages, okay? The book is written by an author named Paul Kalanithi. Paul Kalanithi is somebody that you uh, get kind of his resume in the opening pages of the book, and this is the true story of, uh, of his journey. Uh, Paul, we, when we first encounter him, is 36 years old and has one of those resumes that you can put on Facebook that makes everybody jealous. Um, his dad was a doctor. His older brothers are doctors. He was not certain he wanted to be a doctor, but he'd done well in high school to go to this little school called Stanford, which is not as good as Davidson, but it's really good still. And he, um, he went there, and he didn't know that he wanted to be a doctor, so he studied philosophy and English literature, which like makes my heart sing. Um, but it, by the end of his undergraduate time, he decided he did want to be a doctor, and even though he was studying that. He had the kind of grades to get into medical school, um, and he you know, went and took some courses in organic chemistry, and he could do that as well, which is where our parallel tracks end. And he got into medical school, a really good medical school, and while he was in medical school, he fell in love with a young woman who was in the medical school with him, and they uh, got married. And so not only is now Paul Kalanithi this amazing person with this unbelievable resume that can make everybody else jealous of what he puts on Facebook, but he's now marrying an equally impressive person who has the great resume and she's in medical school and they're going to go change the world together and they have this amazing life. After medical school finishes, they apply for residency. He gets into a residency program in neurosurgery. So he is literally a brain surgeon and he uh, is at the beginning of the book entering his final year of residency after years of study. He's being pursued by Stanford for a teaching position on their faculty. He has opportunities to go be a neurosurgeon at some of the most prestigious hospitals and teaching schools in this country. But what you learn in the opening pages is that Paul Kalanithi has two secrets that he is not sharing with anyone. The first is that while he fell in love in medical school and everything's great, the rigors of both medical school and two people doing their residencies had taken its toll on his marriage and this amazing relationship with great Christmas cards and everything that goes with it that he and his wife had separated. But they were so committed to this life that they were supposed to live that they were keeping it a secret from everyone, including their families, including their closest friends. And the second thing you learn about Paul that he's not sharing with anybody is that he is experiencing more and more fatigue as a resident and losing weight through debilitating back pain. And when he no longer can take the pain anymore, he goes in for a scan and learns that he, at age 36, has terminal cancer. That's what happens at the beginning of the book. And the journey from that point forward is where he goes from there. Part of why I want to use that book, When Breath Becomes Air, today is because there's been much that's been written about why that book has touched so many people. But one of the things that it talks about is how much human beings in our culture today can relate to the friendships and the community that Paul Kalanithi and his wife had. Because we are surrounded by people all the time, and most of us are not known by anyone. Sociologists tell us this about our culture today. They tell us that we are experiencing things that have never happened before in human history. That we are, for example, more urbanized than any point in human history. More and more people are living in cities. Cities like Austin are growing, and this is a phenomenon happening around the world. That technology is allowing us to not just live closer together, but we know more facts about more people's lives than at any point in human history. We're more connected than any point in human history, and yet that we are most likely lonelier at the same time than any point in human history. 
Study after study after study shows this. There was a recent article, for example, in The Atlantic that talked about the uh, increasing loneliness and isolation of teenagers and young adults as social media increasingly becomes the way you connect. Because social media is a great way to know some facts about people, or at least the facts they're willing to share with you, with the spin on it they're willing to share with you. But it is not a way that makes genuine friendships and intimacy at all. And so there is a spike among teenagers and young adults as this becomes more the way we connect of being surrounded by people and yet not being known. This is true of older adults. This is not just a generational thing. Older adults, as we are living longer in our country today, often that means that we are living in more and more isolation. Maybe it means that we are living alone. And there's been plenty that has been published about the physical, emotional, and, psych and psychological deterioration that takes place in older adults if we live more and more isolated lives. And a particular study that hit home to me recently was published in the Boston Globe by a reporter named Billy Baker. Some of you may have read this or seen this. Billy Baker tells the story about one day as he's working and writing for the Boston Globe that he is called into his editor's office because they want to put him in charge of a huge new feature story that the Boston Globe's going to be working on. And they call him in and he's like, man, I, I was called into the editor's office and you're so excited when you get recognized and like, we're going to do this feature story and we want to bring you in and you're going to head it up. And they said, Billy, you know, it's going to be this big project. We're sinking a ton of resources into it. This is a big deal. And we have thought about all of our writers and you are the guy to lead this project in lead this story. And he said, great, what's the project? And what's the story? And he said, there are all kinds of studies coming out in the United States about the increasing loneliness and isolation in men in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And we've thought about all of our writers, and you are the guy to write this story for us. He said that he left that office infuriated. He went back to his desk and he wrote out and started writing a memo back to the editors telling him why he was not the right person because he's married and he has kids and he's busy all the time and there's people always at work and there's people always connecting with him and he just wants more time by himself. He is not lonely at all. He has people in his life, family, people, coworkers, couple friends, people we're going out to dinner with, we're going to events with, we're going to ball games with. I have tons and tons of people in my life. And he said, so I started to write them down. I started to write down all these people and all these things that we do. And as I was writing them down, I started asking myself, yeah, but so, so these people know me, right? And he said, as I went through my list of who I spend time with and how much, what I realized is I'm actually the perfect guy to write this story. Because I have tons of people in my life. And I don't think I'm known by anybody. That's what loneliness looks like in our culture today. It's not somebody that doesn't have anyone to talk to much of the time. It's people who are surrounded by a crowd and don't have community. And the research that Billy Baker wrote about in men in our culture today is that it is now in a clear majority of men in our country, but none of them will admit to it. And I know, guys, I'm breaking some kind of guy code here by even saying this out, out loud. that few will admit it, and the majority struggle with it. And it's not just like some intellectual struggle. That the Surgeon General of our country has recently come out with a statement that the physical toll of isolation and loneliness among men in America is a greater health threat than either smoking or obesity. But no one's talking because we all got people. And there's a shame and a stigma that if you says that's not just a statistic, but that describes me. 
And so we push it away. And it's literally killing us. I don't say this to just be a downer. I say this because if we're going to engage and seek to live differently, we have to begin with honesty and naming things. And we have to understand the power of the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes clear to us what science and studies are teaching us and showing us that you and I are created for relationship, for friendship, for community, for depth, for meaning. And no matter how old you are, no matter whether you're a male or a female, no matter whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, you are not an exception to that rule. And your calendar can't be too busy to make you immune from the effects of it. The Surgeon General says it is an epidemic in our culture today. And so with that in mind, let's engage God's vision for what community looks like in the scriptures. Because God doesn't just say you're made for it, but he actually goes further and says, and here's what it actually can look like. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Now, during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that you would help us to capture your vision of what life and life abundant looks like. Help us to get that vision when it comes to our community, our life together, and may it propel us forward in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we see in this passage is that first off, Jesus doesn't just stay on the mountaintop praying with God at night, but he comes down, it says, to a level place. He joins the people, that that his solitude moves him out into community. And what I want you to notice in this is that while there's a crowd of people that are there, and as we've said, in our culture, loneliness often happens in the middle of crowds. It's not that that there's not people uh, around us on a daily basis. But that what Jesus does to begin this public ministry, this movement, is he brings 12 out and calls them out from the crowd and gives them a special distinction in his life. He calls them apostles, and their names are given here. And the question that we are spending time on as a church is not just how do we put more people and more events and more scheduling into your life, but how do we as a church take a lot of time and attention to try to help all of us focus on who are those small numbers of people that God sends out into our lives? Who are the apostles sent to us? The question we like you thinking about today and this week and even beyond is who are the people that God has sent to you? Who are the people that God has sent to you? That's what the word apostle means. It literally means one that is sent. And what we first see here is that when it comes to community, the first way that these apostles are sent is they're sent to each other in friendship. They're sent to each other in community and in relationship. 
What we believe is that this isn't just a moment when the 12 of them were together, but that for the next three years, they journey together with Jesus daily, that they they cook with Jesus and they cook with each other. They clean up with Jesus and they clean up together. They, they tell jokes. They laugh. They cry. They argue with Jesus and probably argue in front of him with each other in ways that make them feel really petty and small when they step back and think about it. They have to reconcile. They have to do all those things. And that, that is the way that Jesus' ministry begins. That what God doesn't do is like, that Jesus doesn't come down and start by having a panel discussion on what the kingdom of God should be. Doesn't start with a pamphlet that he sends out going, these are the truths that I need to document for you to know. It starts with people. It starts with relationships. And that shouldn't surprise us. We believe, for example, that God is Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what that means is, is that God in God's very nature in some mysterious way is one being in three persons and that God is constantly in relationship with God's self. Think about that for a minute, that God is constantly in a state of relationship with God's self. There's something about the very nature of God that is inherently relational. It's very core. It can't be, you can't separate God from relationship. And the way that, 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 that we see that Jesus then uh, says in the New Testament that, that if you don't understand that you were created for a relationship with God and your neighbor, then you're missing the whole point. And what we're seeing in the United States today is increasing numbers. We are missing the point. So the question that we are asking is, who are those few that God has sent to you? And how do you recognize them? Well, to get at that, we asked this question to our staff this week, because our staff is full of wisdom, and they have all the answers to stuff that I don't. And so we asked them the question, like, guys, help me figure this out. How do we know? How do we start identifying the apostles, the people sent into our lives? And so we broke in staff meeting into small groups and then came back together in a larger group to talk. And our staff pointed out again and again and again that in their mind, the way that they know the people that God has sent into their lives is that these are the people who journey with us in our need. They said most people that we know don't know our needs. And they probably shouldn't. It's not about that we just start advertising our needs to the entire world or our broken places or our wounds. But they said that the people sent to us are the people that know our needs and journey with us into something new, into a new direction. And I think that is an amazing definition. That's what Paul Kalanithi found in When Breath Becomes Air. He found that he went from being surrounded by people who didn't really know him to having people where cancer revealed and he couldn't hide what needs were and it allowed him to move into a whole new place with people to journey. And if church is anything, it has to be the place where we work together to identify all of us. Where are those people that are sent to us? Because without it, we suffer. All of us. A couple weeks ago, I had a great joy in ministry um, that happened. And the joy that I experienced was through a text message from a guy named Andrew, who um, lives in Atlanta, who I got to know at the first church I ever worked at 15 years ago. Andrew, when I first met him 15 years ago, was in his 20s. He was a young uh, banker with SunTrust Bank. He uh, was a private wealth manager, and he attended the church that I was working at. And we were talking some about more increasing isolation in our contemporary culture today. And Andrew had the courage to come up, and as uh, an individual and as a young adult, he came up and had the courage to say, man, that describes me. I've got tons of friends in my life, and yet I feel lonely and not known a lot of the time. 
He said, what do, you, what do we do about it? He said, I want to start getting some guys together. And I want to kind of do this. He goes, but I haven't been to seminary. I haven't been trained. And there's no committee about this and everything. Like, what do you think? I'm like, yeah, well, there's some other young guys at our church. And he knew some of them by name and some of them he really didn't. But he started taking the initiative and walking around to some of these guys and going, hey, you know, do you want to connect? You're like, I'm going to grab lunch. Do you want to kind of get to, get to know each other? And guys do what guys do. It's like, oh, I'm so busy. I don't know. You know, I got to figure out my schedule. But some of them had the courage to actually engage with Andrew in that. And after enough of them started getting together, they decided to go on a retreat together. They went away for a weekend. About 10 guys uh, together uh, went away for a weekend. And he came to me. He's like, what do I talk about? I don't have a speaker. I don't want a speaker. I don't, you know, I don't want this to be a panel discussion. Just want us to keep growing in our relationship with each other and our relationship with God. And so we came up with some questions that for those of you who go to the downtown men's Bible study, you're talking about right now because we assigned it um, this week. Where do you find joy? Where do you not? Where do you have purpose in your life? Where do you not? Where do you feel connected to God? Where do you not? And how do you start praying for each other in that? He's like, okay, we're just going to get together and we're kind of going to do that and play Frisbee golf and kind of hang out and we'll see what happens. No agenda, no schedule, no program, no curriculum. They came back from the weekend like, yeah, we think we want to do that again. Six months later, they went again on another retreat. No agenda, no curriculum, no speaker, no committee from the church overseeing it. It wasn't a program of anybody. They just took initiative with other human beings and reached out and moved. And the text I received this week was from their most recent retreat. That 15 years later, these same 10 guys are still gathering twice a year to go away for the weekend together. Some of them don't live in Atlanta anymore. Many of them have gained many pounds from 15 years ago when they were together. A number of them have a lot less hair than they had 15 years ago. Many of them are now married. They have kids of different ages. But what they're still doing is meeting twice a year and gathering. He sent me a photograph of them on the street going, 15 years later, we're still gathering. And I wrote him back and said, Andrew, it's, it's incredible. Like, how, why do you think, well, how is this happening? Most people can't get anything going for 15. I can't get anything going for 15. How do you sustain this? What is your, like, what's the secret sauce? He said, he wrote me back and texted me back. He goes, I don't know. All I can tell you is these are the guys that really know me. And they keep pointing me towards Jesus. These are the guys that know me. And they keep pointing me towards Jesus. (laughs) Guys, doctors, people with PhDs, doctorates, people who have studied this stuff for years, have written books on what it means to be the church, who have never given it clear of a definition of what a church truly is, as Andrew sent me in that text message. Because a church is not a building. This is not a church. This is a building. It's an important building where we meet for worship and our children and our teens. It's not that buildings aren't important, but this isn't a church. A church isn't a denomination. A church is not an institution. A church is a living thing. It is the community of people following Jesus together. And what Andrew was saying, this is church. These are the people that actually know me and they keep pointing me to Jesus. And we do that together. And that is the most significant work that covenant can do. That we can be a church that continues to help you to find Jesus, or the way that we talk about it is in finding community where you're encouraged to follow Jesus wherever you live, work, and play. 
And so we spend a ton of time on our staff and in the leadership of the church going, how do we do that? Not just how do we surround you with more people, but how do we seek to create pockets of community through small groups, through mentoring, through Bible studies, through D groups, through all different kinds of ways where it's not about a curriculum or a speaker, but it's about your life being genuinely shared with someone else. And what we want to continue to encourage you is that as we relentlessly pursue that, that you all continue to pursue it as well. That today when you leave here, there are going to be tables outside with community life guides. There's going to be a new actual pictorial directory of our church that's available starting today when you leave that you can pick up when you go to invite someone to lunch or to invite someone to coffee or to invite someone to a small group or to invite somebody to go on a retreat, to, to take initiative with other people, to seek out and create that kind of community and to keep doing it again and again and again because you were made for relationship. Because my most genuine dream for this congregation is that when you hear and say our mission statement, that it would mean something to you. That we encourage one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. And that when you hear that, when you close your eyes and hear that, that what would come to mind when you hear it or say it are faces, are people, not values, not institutional organizational values, but people would come to mind that all of us would be able to look and name a couple of names and say, those are the people that actually do that work, that God has sent into my life who actually encouraged me to follow Jesus wherever I live, work, and play because friends, that is what we're made for. I look forward to continuing on this journey together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would meet us. Help us to move beyond just having more of a crowd in our life where we go to events and do things. Not that that's bad, but that we would have more than that. That we would know the names and the faces of those few who are called out from the crowd and sent as apostles into our life. Who know us and keep relentlessly pointing us to Jesus. And as we do that, may we flourish as the men and women that you created us to be. We pray for this and trust in your meeting us in this call to community. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.